Father, we thank you that we get to stand here today and proclaim that you are good. To give testimony to your goodness in our lives, to rest in the promise of your word that you are working all things together for the good of those who love you. So Father, we thank you for your unrelenting goodness, your unrelenting faithfulness, your unrelenting kindness to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, you saw us in our sin, you saw us in our desperation, and your word tells us that in our worst possible moment, you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were still sinners, your son Jesus died for us. Father, that is a goodness that we can barely even begin to scratch the surface of truly knowing. And so we ask this morning humbly, Father, will you help us to know it just a little bit more? So Lord, as we open up your word this morning, would we see your faithfulness to us? Would we see your commitment to us? Would we see the covenant that you've made with us, Lord? And would we truly, with every breath that we are able, commit ourselves to you and rejoice in you and sing to you for your goodness in our lives. Help us to see that goodness in your word today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as you find your seats this morning, uh, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 23 is where we'll be going this morning, looking at verses 16 through 22. If you're new with us today, if you're our guest, my name's Taylor, and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. We're honored to have you worshiping here with us this morning. And for the last two weeks, we've been in a message series called Bad Religion. We've been studying Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus pronounces seven statements that are called the woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. A a woe is a statement of judgment or condemnation. And Jesus was speaking these statements against the religious leaders and the religious culture, the corruption of uh, his day. So last week we looked at the first two of these woes. The first woe was shutting the kingdom door in the faces of those who would seek to know the Lord. The second woe was the woe of multiplying legalistic disciples, of actually multiplying our sin and toxic religious culture into the lives of others. And then today, Uh, we will see Jesus pronounce the woe against those who make empty religious promises. When I was in third grade, uh, so I was about eight years old, our class was going on a field trip one day, and so that morning we get to school, and all of the vehicle assignments were announced, and I was thrilled internally to discover uh, that I was going to be sharing a vehicle with the girl that I had a huge crush on at the time. And this is just magic for an eight-year-old kid, right? I mean, it's just destiny. Our paths have been united. We uh, climbed into a 1989 Plymouth Voyager. Who knows what I'm talking about there? Relic from the 1900s. And uh, so we get on our way down the road towards a field trip. This van's packed full of third graders. About an hour and a half into the trip, we stopped at a gas station, and uh, one of my buddies bought a pack of Starbursts. I bought a pack of Skittles, and as these things tend to go with kids, uh, a few minutes later down the road, I said, hey, Josh, I'll trade you uh, some Skittles for a couple of Starbursts. And it's as if he was waiting on me to ask him this question all morning long. Without missing a beat, he says, I'll give you the whole pack of Starbursts if you tell us who you have a crush on. Now, he's my buddy, and like we'd, we'd, I think, stayed over at each other's house. It was was like a couple weeks before, and we had shared this information with each other, so he knew who I had a crush on. 
And so in this moment, he's trying to get me like, like, dude, you're outing me right here in front of everybody. It puts me in this awkward situation because uh, if I put myself out there, I run the risk of rejection or of embarrassment. But if I make something up and I say somebody else's name, maybe she likes me too, but then she'll think I don't like her. And so I'm just in like this existential dilemma as an eight-year-old kid and sitting back there. And so finally, everybody in the van's in on it now. They're like, you got to tell us, you got to tell us. And so I caved to the peer pressure and I just blurted it out. I was like, I like Rachel sitting right in front of me. And everybody's like, oh, so they're, they're making fun of me. And then uh, we get out of the van when we get to the field trip. Of course, they run and they tell everybody. Now, everybody's making fun of me, but, but I'm feeling pretty confident. I'm like, you know what? I was true to myself and I spoke my heart. And then we get back in the van on the way back home. They're still sitting in front of me. Her friend leans over to her, whispers something in her ear, and she turns around. She says, hey, Taylor, I'll tell you that I like you if you give me the rest of those Starbursts. I'm like, we're in business now. And so I didn't even have to think about it. I mean, I think I had about six of them left over, a couple pink ones in there, the best ones, but I was like, anything for you, babe. And so like I, you know, I hand them over in my mind, I'm like handing her a diamond ring, basically. We're gonna name our kids the rest of the trip home. And so I hand over the pack uh, of Starburst and she looks at me and she says, okay, Taylor, I like you as a friend. I'm like, what? It just crushed me. Right, and everybody's just making fun of me. And I'd, I'd put myself out there and I, I thought we had something going on here. And, and you know, given the benefit now of wisdom and hindsight, I now know 25 years later that what she was doing in her wicked, sinister, deceptive, uh, eight-year-old ponytailed mind is she had created a loophole that was gonna allow her to feel better about the fact that she was going to say something to me that she didn't really mean. And what we've seen the last couple of weeks with the actions of the scribes and the Pharisees is their great error was that they would try to interpret and apply the word of God, which is okay to do, but then take those interpretations and applications and treat them as authoritative, or in some cases, even more authoritative than the word of God itself. And one of their corrupt religious practices was to make empty spiritual promises cloaked up in religious language that they had absolutely no intention of keeping. And, and, and because of this, Jesus calls them blind guides, hiding behind cloaked up, superficial, spiritual, religious sounding language to create loopholes that allowed them to disobey the word of God and feel good about doing it. And so not only were they doing this for themselves, they were leading others in these practices. And Jesus condemns this religious corruption, which we'll see here in verses 16 to 22 today. You know, even today as, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are all prone to make spiritual promises that we have no intention whatsoever of keeping. It might be something that you've prayed, a covenant, a vow, a commitment you've made to the Lord. It might be something you've committed to the church. It might be something that you've committed to another brother or sister in Christ. But uh, as we're going to see through scripture this morning, if you're following along in your notes this morning, as followers of Jesus, we have to take our commitment seriously. As followers of Christ, we are called to make, uh, take our covenants and our commitments seriously because making empty promises and justifying disobedience leads to spiritual blindness within the body of Christ. And this is the type of bad religion that we'll see Jesus condemn today. So uh, Matthew 23, this is what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to go and read all of verses 16 through 22, and then I'm going to take a few minutes just to explain what's going on here because I think even as we're reading it, you, you might be a little bit confused about exactly what it is Jesus is talking about uh, out of the seven woes, this is probably the one that's a little bit more complex to understand. So, uh, so I'm going to spend a few minutes explaining it. We're going to look at a few other scriptures, and then we'll start uh, breaking it down a little bit more. So Matthew 23 is the word of the Lord from verses 16 through 22. 
Jesus says, woe to you. So again, that word woe, judgment, condemnation. It's born out of an immense sense of grief. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So just a little bit of context here this morning to, to help us break this down. Uh, in Jewish culture, covenants were very serious business. We teach this in our covenant membership class, how uh, the Hebrew word for covenant could really be expressed as betweenness. If you just wanted a, a, an ultimate literal rendering of it, it could be expressed as betweenness. And this emphasized the deeply relational nature of the agreement that was being made. So uh, in this time and culture, very often what two parties would do if they were making a covenant agreement with each other was uh, they would take some sort of animal. They would cut it in half. They would split the two parts of the animal on opposite sides, and then they would pass by one another, walk in between these two pieces of the animal that had been killed. And it was their way of saying symbolically, if either one of us breaks our word, let the same thing happen to us that's happened to this animal. So covenants were very serious business. And, and you, you talk about, uh, you shall not bear false witness. This had life and death implications in this culture. Covenants were very serious business because you're talking about a a culture at a time where your word was everything. And so if you couldn't be trusted to be a person of your word, to be a person of integrity, you would lose business. You would be relationally isolated. You'd be cut off from the religious community. I mean, it could literally cost you your life. You'd starve to death if people didn't know that they could trust you and they would just totally cut you off and you'd be isolated from everyone else. So covenants were very serious. I just want to walk us through a few passages of scripture really quickly that help us see the magnitude and the significance of of covenants from the perspective of the Lord. So uh, Deuteronomy chapter 23, uh, I want to read verses 21 through 23 here for us. Again, we're just going to look at a few passages about what the Old Testament law had to say about covenants. Deuteronomy 23 verse 21, it says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. And then just a few pages behind that from Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2, this is Moses speaking to the nation of Israel about vows. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, this is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Then one more, we'll go to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and we'll read verses 4 through 7. It says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. So when Jesus calls the religious leaders fools, he's really alluding back to this passage. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. 
Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So we see this over and over and over again that vows were incredibly serious business. And so what the scribes and Pharisees did is as they made interpretation and application of these laws regarding vows, they had created these completely superficial religious sounding loopholes that got them around the need in their perspective to fulfill the vows that they made. And so just to, uh, you know, the way Jesus breaks it down here is this is how the Pharisees would basically say it. They would say, hey, if you uh, make an oath, it's okay if you make an oath uh, on the temple, if you swear by the temple, as long as you don't swear by the gold of the temple. In their estimation, it was the gold of the temple that made it valuable and that gave it meaning. So they said, well, you can make a promise, and as long as you don't swear by the gold of the temple, then you don't have to fulfill that promise. Or they would look at the sacrificial system. They'd say, well, uh, you can swear by the sacrifice as long as, or swear by the altar. As long as you don't swear on the sacrifice, then you're good. So I mean, just a, a totally superficial standard that they had created. And so here's just an example of how this might play out uh, in their culture. We know of the scribes and Pharisees from the last couple of weeks that they loved public religious displays. They love to stand in public places and let people see them for their righteousness. And so one of them might stand up and publicly say, the law says to give 10%, but I'm going to give 30%. And so other people would see this and say, wow, that's amazing. And they would be just mesmerized at this display of righteousness. Man, the law just says 10%. They're going to give triple that amount. Well, then the time would come to pay up. And someone might come to one of these people and say, hey, uh, I thought you were planning to give 30%. They said, well, yeah, I know that's what I said at the time, but I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. I just swore by the temple. So I didn't really mean it. I'm not really obligated to fulfill this because, you know, I was just, I was saying that kind of in the moment, but let's be honest. It's not like I made a real vow. It's not like I made a, a real covenant. So, I mean, it was just this totally superficial standard that they had created, totally bogus religious language that they would use to absolve themselves of any personal responsibility and upholding their vows. Just in short church, it was like this. They wanted to feel good about the fact that they were sinning. And so they cloaked up their sin in superficial religious language to make themselves feel better about the fact that they were shirking their responsibility. So I know that's a lot of context and a lot of background this morning. L let me just break this down Barney style this morning. If you're still getting lost in the language of gold and temple and sacrifices and altars, this is what Jesus is getting across here this morning. This is a warning to us against making religious promises, empty promises. This is a warning against creating loopholes around obedience. And this is a warning against trivializing our commitment to the Lord. Those are the three warnings here for us today. It's a warning against making empty religious promises, against creating loopholes around obedience, and against trivializing commitment to the Lord. Jesus says those who do these things are blind guides. We become spiritually blind. And so just like you would do sitting at the, in the chair at the optometrist's office this morning, we're gonna ask a few questions for diagnosing spiritual blindness because these are all areas because of sin that we are prone as followers of Jesus to drift into. And so we just wanna ask three questions I think this text presents for us this morning about where we might be guilty of spiritual blindness in our lives. And then we'll look at some applications for how we avoid these things when we close. So first question this morning for diagnosing spiritual blindness, what promises am I making that I have no intention of fulfilling? Where are we making maybe some, some with even the best of intentions, 
some religious, spiritual sounding promises that we really have no intention of fulfilling. What commitments are we making to the Lord? What commitments are we making to the church? What commitments are we making to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ that deep down inside, we really have no intention of fulfilling? Within the life of the church, this could take on a number of forms. We might commit to serve, but then we don't show up to serve. We might commit to give a financial gift, but then we don't give the gift. We might commit to going through a class or committing to a group, but then we never show up or attend. We might go through the process of membership within a local church, but then not adhere to the covenant that we've made. Our world today, church, we're suffering from this plague of maybe. We are so terrified to let each other down. So we, we get invited to things, we ask to commit to things, and what do we say? Let me pray about that. Deep down inside, we're like, no chance that's happening. I'll let you know by the end of the week. I'll let you know by the end of this month. Let me get through this week. Let me get through this month. Let me get through this season. Let, let, me, let me think uh, about this. And we, just, we suffer from this plague of maybe because we don't want to be perceived as people who don't care. We don't want to be perceived as people who are disinterested, but we just really struggle to say one way or the other, yep, I'm all in on that, or no, I can't commit to this. But we struggle from this plague of maybe. And when it comes to commitment in our culture, we tend to gravitate to one of a few different extremes. We either overcommit and we take on way more than we can handle, so we end up letting lots of different people down, or we undercommit when we could, in fact, probably handle a little bit more than we currently are, or we never commit in the name of not wanting to overcommit. And so we tend to drift towards one of these three extremes. Like we either take on way too much, which, you know, at the end of the day, we end up disappointing lots of people because when you're everywhere, you're nowhere. And we're not able to fulfill the obligations that we've committed to, or we undercommit. We're kind of in a comfort zone. Hey, this is good. When deep down we know I could probably do a little bit more here, or we just never do anything. And we do it all in the name of not wanting to burn out, in the name of not wanting to overcommit, in the name of not wanting to fry ourselves. And here's how Jesus addresses this problem of maybe in Matthew chapter 5. This is from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. Jesus is talking here about oaths, about vows and covenants. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, listen to this, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Listen to this, verse 37. He says, let what you say be simply yes. Everybody say yes. yes. Or no. Everybody say no. Anything more than this comes from evil. It's pretty simple the way Jesus lays it out for us here. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. What we're suffering from this plague of maybe, and that maybe left unchecked can leave us into sin because we can inadvertently be deceiving others. We can inadvertently be deceiving ourselves. What we use that, I think, sometimes as an opportunity to, to shirk our responsibility as the Lord has called us. We have to be so very careful with the language that we use because Scripture calls us to take the commitments that we make very, very seriously. Saying yes that we have no, to something that we have no intention of doing, it's a form of lying, and we're not just deceiving ourselves, we're not just deceiving our others. Ultimately, we're sinning against God. 
Scripture calls us to take our commitments seriously, to let our yes be yes and let our no be no. Jesus is saying here just very simply, just to break it down like this, be the type of person that doesn't need to say things like, hey, I promise with my hand on the Bible. Because people swear on the Bible all the time, right? And then not do the things that they said that they will do. Be the type of person that doesn't have to say, hey, hand on the Bible. Hey, I swear on my mother's grave. Like your mom ain't coming back to get you if you don't fulfill this. There's no risk in that. Don't be, even Jesus says, be the type of person. Don't even swear to, to heaven. He says, just be the type of person who is of such impeccable character, of such great integrity, that when you say yes or no, people believe you. That they trust that you're all in, that yes, you can commit to this, or no, you just can't right now. Don't have to be the type of person who's always coming up with an excuse and, and who's always deferring, deferring, deferring the answer. Jesus says, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no, because everything else comes from evil. Second question this morning, what loopholes am I creating for commands that I am ignoring? This was the work of the scribes and the Pharisees. So they just wanted to change the language of, of what a vow actually was. Well, did I really vow if I didn't swear by the gold of the temple as long as I just swore by the temple? Did it really count then? It was it it changing the language. It was cloaking it up spiritual, spiritual, with spiritual language to, to make it sound like they were doing the right thing. Again, it was just the equivalent of saying, I like you as a friend. It was, it was I'm going to say something. I'm posturing one way, but I ultimately mean something totally different. And this was the work of the Pharisees. So what loopholes are we creating for commands that we're ignoring? The loophole for the scribes and Pharisees was to ask, what exactly is a vow? What exactly do you mean by that? And church, just make no mistake this morning, this has always been the work of the enemy since day one. What, what the, the enemy has done since day one, his tactics have never changed. It is to take what scripture says to be abundantly clear and make it sound like it's unclear. We're gonna see some more of this next week because we're gonna see Jesus use the word justice. And you talk about a word that is debated with rage in our culture today. Scripture's actually made it abundantly clear what it means that God is just and what it means for us to be people who pursue justice in this world. We're just going to open up the word of God and see what it says. And what the enemy wants to do is take the plain, clear things of Scripture and make them sound like they're unclear. And this was the work of the scribes and Pharisees. They wanted to make it sound unclear what it meant to take a vow. When, as we saw, looking at a few passages of Scripture a moment ago, it was abundantly clear what they were supposed to do when they took a vow. They knew that not to fulfill a vow was sin against the Lord. It was to invite his judgment and condemnation. So in order to justify themselves, they created a loophole around it. it reminds us of the interaction of Jesus with uh, the religious leaders in Luke chapter 10, where he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. He talked through the, the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And how does the, the scripture tell us the story goes with the religious leader? It says that seeking to justify himself, he asked the question, then who is my neighbor? This was always the work of the religious leader. He was trying to find the loophole. He's asking, who exactly do I have to love? Who exactly do I have to love? Who exactly do I have to fulfill and follow this command for? And that's when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. How uh, the man was beaten and robbed and stripped and left for dead. And the priest steps over him. The Levite steps over him. I mean, they just totally ignore him. They hide behind the word of God to shirk their responsibility. And then it's the Samaritan who comes and helps. The Samaritan who would have been hated by the Jewish leaders. And Jesus says he's the one who more faithfully followed according to the word of God. It all started with creating a loophole. Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love? Who do I have to care for? This is what we see every political election cycle. We see this. 
I mean, Scripture's abundantly clear. You love your enemies. You pray for your persecutors. Scripture's abundantly clear. We honor and pray for those in positions of governing authority. But what do we do? We hide behind spiritual language. No, that person is morally reprehensible. That, that person is far from Christ. I, I, I can't, as a follower of Jesus, pray for someone with those policies, with those ideologies. What have we done? We've created the loophole. Here's why I'm the exception to that rule. We hide behind spiritual language to not obey what the word of God has said to do. And Jesus looks at all of that and says, woe to you. Who shirk your responsibilities, who create loopholes, who change the commandments of scripture, who impose your personal convictions to get around obedience to what the word of God has clearly told us to do. This leads into the third question this morning, that as we create these loopholes, as we ignore commands, we need to ask this morning, what sins am I excusing that I need to be addressing? What sins am I excusing that I need to be addressing? Church, understand this this morning. Creating a loophole around biblical commands does not make us people who are innocent. It makes us people who are impaired. Jesus says this is blindness. You might come up with a religious-sounding, spiritual-sounding conviction that you then impose on the Word of God to get around your responsibility in fulfilling this, but Jesus says, doesn't make you enlightened, that makes you blind. And, and when we leave that blindness unchecked, we lead others into corrupt religious practice. When we start to ignore clear commands of Scripture, and listen, God help us, sometimes we use the Word of God against the Word of God to try to shirk our responsibilities as followers of Jesus. And Jesus condemns all of this. He just condemns all of this. He speaks woe of judgment and condemnation against this type of superficial religious posture that we would actually cloak up our disobedience with spiritual sounding language. And we become blind. We, we become blind both to sins of commission, which is doing things we shouldn't do. We become blind to sins of omission when we're not doing the things that we should do. So here's how this spiritual blindness impairs us with sins of commission. Here's the spiritual language that we'll use. We'll say, I'm, I'm not gossiping. I'm not slandering. I'm not assassinating this person's character. I'm not saying things behind their back that I would absolutely never say to them in person. What I'm doing is sharing a concern. Or listen, God help us, sharing a prayer request. Like we would, we would invoke the practice of prayer as the superficial cloak to mask our slander. God have mercy on our souls when we do these things. God have mercy on our souls. I mean, we so quickly forget just in this, man, this culture we live in right now where we just make snap judgments and we don't, we don't do, we watch a 30 second YouTube clip and form an entire opinion about people. I mean, do we forget, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that those who do such things, you're, you're going to be that divisive person. You're going to be arrogant and constantly condescending. You're going to rush to these judgments. Do you not remember that Paul says those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, God have mercy on our souls when we justify our sins with spiritual sounding language. You might say it like this. I'm not being hateful. I'm not being divisive. I'm not being unreasonable, constantly trying to find something wrong with what others are saying. I'm exercising spiritual discernment. We hide behind this to justify our sin against our brothers and sisters in Christ. We say, I'm not being a jaded, cynical career critic of the church who's constantly finding things wrong with the bride of Christ. I'm exercising spiritual discernment. I'm defending the faith. We hide behind all of this language to justify our sin. Here's how we use it to justify sins of omission, when we're not doing the things that we should do. 
Again, Scripture's clear. Don't want to be legalists about it, but Scripture is clear. Hebrews 10, hey, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. So check. You're doing that this morning. Praise God. What we're gathered together for worship. We should not grow in the habit of forsaking the worship gathering, but this is what we do. It sounds very spiritual. I think church can be anywhere. I think church can be on my boat. I think church can be out of the beach. I think church can be out at the, the ball field. Again, we don't want to be legalist about this and say that there's absolutely no reason you could ever miss a Sunday. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But when we stop to ask, like, is that, that popular spiritual mantra, does that actually square up with the Word of God? Or is that some unique spiritual language that we've created as a loophole around doing what faithfully the Lord's called us to do? Here, here's another. We're going to talk about this more in just a minute. We say, well, I don't really need to be a part of one single local church. I'm just part of the big C church. It sounds so spiritual. It sounds so right. It sounds so good. And listen, brother, sister, I'd love to sit down with you for about 10 minutes and show you from the word of God that while that's popular in the culture, that is absolutely not New Testament biblical Christianity. You just, you just cannot justify that against the word of God. And so we have to be so careful that we don't use these clever spiritual mantras. I mean, some, just enough Bible in some of these types of statements that we can use them to justify our disobedience because Jesus calls this spiritual blindness. We have to be so careful that we're, we don't have these blind spots in our lives or that we would uh, be unfortunate enough to lead others into that blindness as well. So how, how do we avoid this? Like, how do we uh, not drift into this spiritual blindness that Jesus condemns in Matthew 23? A few quick applications for us as we close this morning. First, don't make empty promises for the sake of appearances. I mean, Jesus just makes it clear for us, right? Hey, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Listen, just, just let yourself off the hook this morning. Don't say yes to things that you know you're really not going to be able to fulfill. When we do this, even when we do it with good intentions, what we end up doing is deceiving our brothers and sisters into thinking we're going to do things that we really have no intention of doing. This is dishonesty, that this is lying. We, just, we have to be people, and it's hard sometimes just to say, hey, no, I can't do this right now. We not overextend ourselves. We have to be very, very careful. We let our yes be yes and let our no be no. If you've got a worship guide this morning, we put a copy of our membership covenant in there this morning, and we uh, try to do this a couple of times a year because we think it's important for those of us who are covenant members of this church family that we be reminded just once or twice a year, hey, these are the things that we have said we're going to do today together as a church body. This is the covenant agreement that we have made together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. I think it's good and right and true that a couple of years, uh, a couple times a year, we be reminded of these things. Then for those of you who may be prayerfully considering, hey, what's it look like to, to be a covenant member of this church family? We, look, this isn't a secret creed, right? Like it's on our website. We've printed it for you this morning. We want you to know this is what it means to be a part of our church family. Just based on what we see in scripture, this is what we see follower of Christ doing in the New Testament. This is what we believe we're called to do today. We need to be committed to these things. We need to let our yes be yes and let our no be no. Because again, I know we do have this popular mantra today. You've probably heard it. Maybe you're feeling it a little bit this morning. I don't feel a need to be a part of uh, any specific church because I'm just kind of part of the big C church. Let me talk about it in the, the frame of marriage here for just a moment. 
Jesus, uh, the, the, the scripture describes the, the relationship that Jesus has with the church as the relationship that a bride has with a groom. So it is given to us in marriage terms. Now, uh, I happen to be a really big fan of marriage. Is anybody with me on, on that this morning? I, I love my wife, and I'm not just saying that because she's in this service. I said it every service. Um, and and I, we, we, by the great grace of God, we have a great marriage, and, uh, and I, I love marriage. It's awesome. But let's, let's say that uh, 11 years ago, as we're preparing to get married, um, instead of me expressing my love for marriage by marrying her, I said, you know what? I don't really feel the need to be married to like one woman. I think I'm just, I like the idea of marriage. I think I, sh- I could have like multiple wives. I'm pretty sure that's mostly illegal still, right? Like th- this is typically frowned upon. I-, I don't prove my love and commitment to marriage by loving all women everywhere, very much frowned upon. I prove my commitment to marriage by loving one woman somewhere, namely the woman the Lord has given to me, my wife. That's how I prove that faithfulness and commitment. I I don't say, you know, I'm just kind of committed to the big M marriage, not the lower M marriage. It just doesn't work. And again, especially in our consumer-friendly culture, let me take this a step further this morning because this is going to sound ridiculous. What if I said, if I was married to Emily, I said, you know what, I'm mostly enjoy what I'm getting from this marriage over here. But I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to start getting my physical intimacy over here in this marriage. I'm going to start getting relational intimacy in this marriage. I'm going to get financial security from this marriage. I'm going to have friendship in this marriage. I'm going to have vacations with this marriage. That's insanity, right? And yet what do we do with the church in our consumer-driven culture today? I think I like the worship over here. I kind of like the preaching over here. And I kind of like the kids' programs over here. We're everywhere, so we're nowhere. And listen, I, I feel like some of us, it, it's, it's a great sincerity when we say that we're part of the big C church. I think it's misguided, but I do think it's sincere at least. But for others, this is what I fear. That's a mantra that we hide behind because we just refuse to commit anywhere. And that does not reflect who Jesus calls us to be, a Jesus who calls us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. It is hard for your yes to be yes and your no to be no if you've always got one foot out the door. And when it's time to leave, what do we do? We hide behind spiritual language. Well, I wasn't really like a member there. I was just kind of like a regular attender. Like we, we got close enough to say that we were in without actually being committed. And Jesus just frowns upon this. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Listen, it doesn't have to be here, but it does need to be somewhere. So, so we're not going to make empty spiritual promises for the sake of appearances. Second, don't ignore the commands we're called to obey. So don't make empty promises on that one extreme, but then also like don't ignore the commands. Because listen, you read through our membership covenant. It says that we as a body of believers, we're going to preach the gospel. We're going to make disciples. We're going to be committed to gathering and growing and giving and going because that's what we see the New Testament church doing. And you may decide not to do that here. And listen, that is okay. That There are plenty of faithful churches in this very community where you could go do these same things. But understand, whether you're doing them, whether you're doing those things here or somewhere else is kind of irrelevant. The bottom line is we are called to do these things. Whether you're preaching the gospel, making disciples here, gathering, growing, giving, and going here, it's kind of irrelevant. The bottom line is we need to be doing it somewhere. We can't not do these things just because we refuse to commit in one specific place. There are clear commands we're still called to obey. So don't overextend yourself, don't overcommit yourself, but let's not undercommit either and ignore the things that we've been clearly called to do as followers of Christ. And last and most importantly this morning, as we take all this into consideration, don't forget the one we ultimately serve. 
This is what I think we're missing a lot when it comes to our commitments to Jesus, to his church, to one another today. I think sometimes we forget who it is we are actually serving. And this is what Jesus lays out. He says, that's why you don't swear by heaven because that belongs to the Lord. Like, don't make these empty spiritual promises. Don't even be the type of person that needs to make some kind of an oath. Just be the type of person you're so impeccable of character. You're just letting your yes be yes, your no be no, and you're fully trustworthy in these things. Because understand, when we break promises to the church, when we make promises to one another, it's not me you're letting down. It's not the church as an organization that you're letting down. When we, when we refuse to do these things, it's, it's ultimately the Lord that we're sinning against. And that's heavy for us this morning, but church, here is the good news. The good news is, is that while you and I are all prone to break promises that we've made, to forsake the covenant that we've made with the Lord, to forsake the covenant that we have made with each other, this is the good news of the gospel. While we have been faithless towards him, he has never been faithless towards us. We will suffer from unfaithfulness, but the Lord will continually be faithful to his people. He doesn't break his promises. He doesn't break his vows. He doesn't break his commitments. He doesn't break his covenant. We will do all of these things and the Lord will never waver in his commitment to us. Yesterday um, afternoon, five o'clock yesterday afternoon, uh, I had the privilege of officiating a wedding uh, for a couple in our church family. It was uh, Jay Savannah and Anna Grace Stoddard for those of you guys who know them. And uh, if you know about what was happening yesterday at five o'clock, it was pouring rain. Beaufort, outdoor wedding. And so they had a tent set up and it was ready to go, but it got to be about 30 minutes before the ceremony and the wedding coordinator came to Anna Grace and said, cause she, she was like, I wanna get married outside. The coordinator said, what do you wanna do? And she looks at me, she says, Taylor, what do I do? I said, it's your wedding day. You do whatever the heck you want. The rest of us will deal with it. And she said, I wanna get married outside. And so we stood in the driving wind and rain yesterday. I mean, it was just, it was, it was amazing. I mean, you're talking tuxes and dresses with mud all over them, hairs getting blown all over the place, makeup is running. And man, they just took it in stride with so much joy. It was just absolutely incredible. I think I set a world record for shortest ceremony ever. Um, unofficially clocked by one of the groomsmen at under five minutes. I mean, we just breezed right through it all. Did all of that, went through all of that craziness for what purpose? So they could stand publicly before each other and before witnesses and before the Lord to make vows. And this is the reality is that sometimes we, we're gonna struggle to uphold the commitments and vows that we make to each other, that we make to the church, that we make to the Lord, but we get to rest this morning in the goodness of knowing the Lord will never waver in his faithfulness to us. He will never waver in his faithfulness to us. And he calls us to model that faithful commitments to this world so that the world could see a picture of a God who does not leave or forsake his people so that we could truly sing that all of our lives, he has been faithful. He's been so good. And that's the picture that we're called to put on display. So just bow your heads with me here this morning as we close out our time together. We're gonna to come to the table in just a moment for the Lord's Supper. And it's at this table, we are reminded visibly of the Lord's unwavering commitments to us. I mean, even when we're a mess, he doesn't just duck out when things get bad. He never leaves us, he never forsakes us. And so I just wanna just encourage you as you just examine your own heart this morning. Well, what's your, what's your relationship with commitment right now? 
I mean, man, my heart is for you this morning. Maybe you're overcommitted. Maybe you're overburdened. Maybe you got too much going on and you're struggling to let yes be yes and no be no. And my, my prayer for you this morning is that you would find some freedom in letting things go. You'd find some freedom and not needing to please people all the time. And just letting some things go, just laying those things down at the feet of the Lord. For, for others though, maybe it's just what we've really just struggled to uphold commitments that we've made. We know that we need to be doing a little bit more. We know that maybe we've not given the, the best effort. We just needed to be reminded this morning of some things. And so my, my prayer and my encouragement to you this morning would be just ask, what, what, what is that for you? Maybe just in something as simple as just your, your devotional life each day, maybe within the life of the church, it's your serving, it's your giving, it's, it's just being in community with other believers, it's sharing the gospel. Where have we just struggled in our commitments? We'll just confess that to the Lord this morning and ask for his help by his grace, by the power of his Holy Spirit to help us faithfully do everything he's called us to do. Maybe it does mean taking a step in church membership. Maybe it means this morning just being reminded of the commitments that you made wanting to be more faithful and fulfilling what it is you've committed to the Lord. We do all this from the foundation of knowing that he is relentlessly committed to us. He's not judging us this morning based on our performance and what boxes that we're checking. That makes us want to serve him more, knowing that kind of love. So just come to him this morning, come to him in confession and repentance of sin, of inconsistencies. Is asking for a heart that genuinely turns away from sin. And finally, Lord, we just thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us through your son, Jesus. We thank you for your love and kindness towards us. And as we come to this table this morning, help us to see clearly once again, your goodness and your faithfulness, that we would be people who surrender all of ourselves to you, who would not become spiritually blind as we hide behind spiritual excuses.